I, uh, I want to tell you a little story and then uh, maybe discuss it. Once upon a time, a long time ago, in northern India, there lived a young man named Mohan who had been born to a family of street magicians. You know, they would do the card tricks and the coin tricks, the, the usual stuff. Mohan kind of liked the life, but he wanted to learn the real magic. And so he began inquiring around as to who was the world's greatest magician. And the word came that it was this man who lived in Rajasthan, which is the state in western India. Now, Mohan lived near Calcutta. And the story of his travels from Calcutta to Rajasthan would fill up the rest of our time, but we'll just skip that part. So let's just say he arrives in Rajasthan. He arrives at the town where the world's greatest magician lives, and he begins inquiring around. And first person he asks is, oh, yes, of course, the two-story house on the edge of town. You can't miss it. So Mohan goes through town. Sure enough, nice, big, two-story house with a horse corral in front, you know, obviously somebody fairly well-to-do. Mohan screws up his courage, knocks on the door. It's opened by this Indian man who has this incredible twinkle in his eye. He's, he's short, even for an Indian, but he's, he's just really quite an amazing-looking guy just at, at seeing him. Yes, may I help you? Um, I've come to see the world's greatest magician. Oh, you have, have you? Well, come in, come in. Takes him upstairs to this very nice little parlor room, sits him down, and begins, you know, the usual, are your parents still alive? What do they do? How many brothers and sisters do you have? You know, where are you from? You know, the, the usual introductions that you find in third world countries. And after, you know, five minutes of getting to know each other, the magician says, well... So you want to see the world's greatest magician. Why have you come all this way to meet the world's greatest magician? I want to learn the real magic. The real magic! And the magician starts laughing. Well, just at that point, the magician's wife comes into the room. She's got a silver tray with a very nice teapot and two cups on it. And she comes over to Mohan and hands him a cup, tea, and begins to pour the tea. And just as the first drop of tea hits the bottom of the cup, there's a violent earthquake. I mean, we're talking Loma Prieta times ten. This is a serious earthquake. The magician's wife drops the tray and the teapot and runs out of the room. The magician runs out of the room. Mohan runs out of the room. Everybody runs downstairs. Everybody runs outside. All the servants, everyone, they run to the corral, throw open the gate, and everybody leaps on the back of a horse and rides away. Mohan being the last person down, there's only one horse left for him. He leaps on the back of the stallion. Ride is, uh, well, that's one way to put it. He hung on for dear life. You know, he hadn't ridden horses that much, especially bareback with no bridle. He's got his arms around the horse's neck and the horse is panicked. And Mohan's got his eyes closed, just hanging on. The horse runs for quite a long ways before he gets tired and settles down. Finally, Mohan gets him Stop, turn around, you know, pushes his head, gets him going back the way they'd come. Now, the horse had run off into the desert. Mohan couldn't see the town, but, you know, this tracks just follow the tracks, right? Well, they'd only been started back maybe a minute when a sandstorm 
comes up. Just all of a sudden, the wind picks up, and in two minutes, it's blowing so hard, they have to take shelter behind this big rock and wait the sandstorm out, which takes like two hours. And then as suddenly as it came, it disappeared. Well, now there's no tracks to follow, right? But the horse knows the way home, right? Mount up on the horse, give the horse its head, it'll go home. Come on, we should be home by now. The horse is just plodding along, but there's no sign of civilization, nothing. It's hot, I mean, this is the desert. It's really kind of precarious. They should have been home a while ago. What's going on? It's getting dark. Mohan winds up riding through the night. At one point, he fell asleep and fell off the horse. Luckily, he didn't get hurt and the horse didn't run away. Got back on, managed to stay awake till it begins to get light and suddenly the horse pricks up its ears and starts forward at a trot. And they come to this little stream. Well, the horse immediately face down in the stream. Mohan immediately face down in the stream. Of course, he was upstream from the horse. All right. Well, they got water, and if there's a stream, there must be civilization nearby. So they start following the stream. Except when it starts to get hot again, it's like Mohan knows he's got to take a break. And so they find some, some more rocks and get some shade and sleep during the hot part of the day. And finally, as it begins to cool off, Mohan mounts up. Now, the stream is getting bigger and bigger. You know, it's finally become a pretty fast-moving river. But no sign of civilization until finally, just before dark, there's a bridge across the river. And on the other side, there's a house, smoke coming out of the chimney, you know, plowed fields. I mean, yes, he's saved. He rides across. Three people come out of the house and they're just staring at him. It's an older man and an older woman and a young woman who probably is their daughter and they're just staring at him and he, he dismounts from the horse and uh, says, I, I got lost in the earthquake and, and you know I need to get back and he names the village. And they're just staring at him and he says, uh, do you know where this village is? And they just keep staring and finally the old man says, we thought we were the only ones. What? Now there's, lot, there's, there's lots of people around. I mean, this village has got lots of people in it, and you should see Calcutta. Oh, we thought we were the only ones. Um, oh, there, there's lots of people. Well, you wouldn't happen to have anything to eat, would you? Haven't eaten in like you know a day and a half. The old woman goes, wow, we thought we were the only ones. Uh, no, no, there's lots of people. The old woman looks at him, you want something to eat? Yeah, that would be nice. Uh, they invite him in, he puts his horse in the corral. and Well, after he eats his food, the story comes out. The old man and woman, when they were young, they lived downstream, well, maybe five miles, in a village that was the crossing point where the caravans would cross the river. And the village made a pretty good living trading amongst the caravans. They would grow foods, trade the food to the caravan people for various goods the caravanners were carrying. But then one year the caravans stopped coming. You see, somebody had built a bridge further downstream and it cut off like you know three days journey 
by crossing there instead of coming to this village. And so the village just fell into a real decline. And then the, the disease came two years after that. Um, somebody would be fine one day. They'd be feeling kind of bad by lunchtime. They'd be dead by evening. Just wiped out the whole village except for this 12-year-old boy and 12-year-old girl who had taken some stuff, moved upstream, and had lived the rest of their lives thinking they were the only ones, except for their daughter who was born. And so Mohan tried to explain that, no, there were lots of other people out in the world and he needed to get back to the village. And the old man said, well, you know, you're welcome to continue on your journey, but you got a horse. You see, when we plow the fields for planting, which we need to do now, um, I, I take where the horse would be and my wife takes the plow and I pull the plow and you know if we could just borrow your horse for a couple of days we could get all the plowing done really quickly and it'd be a lot easier I'm getting old and it's you know it's hard for me to be a horse so Mohan you know he's kind of tired from his ordeal and the food there is really nice and their daughter is well she's really sweet and so he decides he'll stay a day or two well, one thing leads to another. Eventually, he and the daughter have a son, you know. Ten years go by. I mean, it's a pretty idyllic life, right? I mean, you know, the, the old man and woman have all these stories that they collected from the caravanners, and they can entertain them in the evening with the stories. And, you know, it, it's, it's nice. Until one day, the old man's walking across the bridge, across the river, stumbles, falls into the river, drowns. Suddenly the idyllic life is changed. And the old woman is just completely inconsolable. She's sobbing and crying and you know, Mohan's wife is freaked out. The little boy is freaked out. Mohan's kind of freaked out. I mean this is I mean, their, their wonderful life has just suddenly changed. And they finally get the old woman calmed down. She cries herself to sleep and Mohan and his wife are sitting there talking and they look up and the old woman is waked up and she's headed for the bridge. And they go running after her, but they're too late. She gets to the middle and throws herself in and drowns. Well, at that point, Mohan's wife lost it. You know, she's just completely freaked out, goes totally hysterical wants to throw herself in the river. You know, Mohan drags her back to the house and finally gets her settled down, you know, and she falls asleep and Mohan's about to fall asleep. She wakes up and starts running for the river. Mohan has to drag her back. It was not a pleasant night. Mohan finally falls asleep. He wakes up, first light, his wife's not there. Jumps up, looks out, oh no, she's headed for the bridge. He goes running after her. Too late, she throws herself in the river and drowns. Mohan just sinks down. He's got his hands in his head. He's just, you know, his whole life is just completely falling apart. When he looks up, his son is standing in the middle of the bridge. He screams, no, no, and his son looks at him, jumps in the river and drowns. Mohan sort of staggers to the middle of the bridge. Well, 
What's the point? Puts one hand over his eyes. He leans forward. And just as his hand hit the water, the magician's wife said, There you are, sir, tea. Enjoy your tea. Things are not quite what they seem to be. We live in a world that's just completely full of illusions. Right? I mean, some of the illusions are like the, uh, the magic tricks that Mohan would do. You know, get a quarter, right? You know, and you could, uh, you could say some magic words like abracadabra and then, and it disappears. Right? Of course, it usually turns up hiding in somebody's hair. Right? It's an illusion, right? I mean, we're all familiar with illusion. Like this quarter. This quarter is an illusion. Why do you carry these around in your pocket? I mean, do you really need a picture of the president, the first president of the United States, the father of our country? Oh, yeah, I'm keeping the president of the United States in my pocket. Oh, no. Maybe you need, well, let's see, this has got a buffalo on it. So if you're out in the... The, the Great Plains and you see a large animal, you can whip out a quarter and say, yeah, it looks like a buffalo, right? No, that's not why you carry these things around. You carry them around because you might need a screwdriver, right? <laughs> why do you carry this, you know, circular pieces of metal in your pocket? Well, because they're valuable. Why are they so valuable? Uh, because we agree they're valuable. I mean, you take a, an identical size piece of metal, same weight. You put Alfred E. Newman's picture on it. Nobody wants that, right? It's got to have George's picture on it. Well, you know. Now, this is four times as valuable, right? You know, because, well, because, because, uh, if you ever need to start a fire, you've got, well, this doesn't burn very well. Um, if you run out of toilet paper, that's why you carry these with you, right? I know why you carry these things in your pocket. No, you don't do that anymore, right? It's got the same guy's picture on it, right? but it's four times as valuable. This one's 20 times as valuable. You know why? Because it's got the grumpy Indian fighter on it instead of the father of our country. That doesn't make much sense. It's 20 times as valuable because it's 20 times as... No, it's the same size. It's the same color. It's 20 times as valuable because it's got a 20 up here. Right? This one's only got a 1. Uh... Did you ever see a 20? Just a plain old 20, not a $20 bill. You know, like a, a 20. Somebody dropped a 20 on the street. Or even a 2 on the street. You know, like a number 2. <laughs> no, of course not. The numbers, we, we made those up. That, that They're imaginary things. And I'm talking about imaginary numbers. I'm talking about 1, 2, 20. We put them on pieces of high-quality paper that are actually cotton and say, well, because this one's got a two and a zero, it's 20 times as valuable as this one. 
These are illusions. It's it's not real. You know, it's just like Mohan's journey. It's it's a thing we make up in our heads. You want to see a real illusion though? Check this out. <laughs> Right. I'm not talking about the hologram on the credit card. I'm talking about this piece of plastic. Think about it. You go into a store, you get some stuff, you walk out. People get upset, right? You go into a store, you get some stuff, you go up to the front, you give them this piece of plastic. They give it back to you. They give you a piece of paper that you make magic marks on. You give them that piece of paper and they give you another piece of paper which you take home and throw away. You take the goods home, nobody gets upset, right? You still got the plastic, you got an extra piece of paper, you know? Of course, that's not the end of the story. Eventually, another piece of paper comes in the mail, right? You tear open that piece of paper. Inside are lots of pieces of paper, most of which you throw away without looking at, right? You find two of the pieces of paper. You rip off the top of one of them. You open your top desk drawer and you get out paper that your bank gave you. You make magic marks on that paper. You get the other piece of paper you were to keep from the piece of paper that came in the mail. You stuff the top half and the piece of paper from your bank inside that piece of paper. Seal it up, stick another little piece of paper in the corner and throw it in a metal box. (laughs) This is reality? Come on. Of course, the only reason it works is because, you know, people like you give me pieces of paper in a basket, which I take to the bank that gave me the pieces of paper. You know how it works. It's, It's ridiculous. And yet, you know, we're, we're, we're comfortable with that. We, we operate in a world of illusions all the time and it's just not a big deal. There's uh, illusions like the moon illusion. You know, when the moon comes up, it's gigantic, right? And a few hours later, it shrinks down to, you know, regular size. How does it do that? In San Francisco, it's really kind of neat if you find a street that faces east, you can wait till the moon comes up. It's right at the end. And if it's a hilly street, you know, the moon is up, but it's still gigantic. And if you run up to the top of the hill, it shrinks down. Turn around, run right back down, it gets big again. How does it know whether you're at the top of the hill or the bottom? (laughs) Of course, you take this quarter and you hold it up at arm's length and you can see the moon is the same size as the quarter held at arm's length when it's big and when it's small. And you actually manage to dispel the illusion. We got illusions like TV. I mean, your TV, when you're watching your TV, you're watching a bunch of dots. That's it, right? Just a bunch of dots. But you can get pretty excited about those dots. You ever watch a bunch of guys watching sports on TV? They're screaming at those dots. Go, 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 you idiot! Don't do... It's just dots, but they're completely caught up in the illusion, right? You go to the movies, right? You're paying, what, ten bucks to see some guy shine a bright light through a piece of plastic. You know? And you laugh and you cry and you literally buy into the illusion. Right? You paid your ten bucks to have this illusion perpetrated on you. And you leave there and you think, oh, that was wonderful. You know, it was amazing how they, you know, and you start talking about what the character, they paid those people to act like that. None of this actually happened. 
All right, but you got your ten bucks worth. We actually like illusions. We we love getting caught up in them. You know, the solidity of this chair, it's illusory. You know, you, you know it's just molecules which are mostly empty except for the atoms, which are mostly empty except for the protons, electrons, and neutrons, which are mostly empty except for the subatomic particles. I mean, nothing hardly here at all. But, you know, it holds us up, so we're willing to call it solid. One of my favorite illusions is time. Now, time is completely an illusion. It's always now, right? Can you ever remember a time when it wasn't now? I mean, you can remember when it was yesterday, but, you know, that's just a memory that's happening right now. All of the past is your memories. And how accurate are your memories? I mean, who in this room can tell me all the telephone numbers they've ever had their whole life? That was important stuff, and you can't even remember that. So how accurate are your memories? How accurate is the past? And the future? (laughs) That's some idea you have. That's some fantasy. It's always now. It's not the eternal now, because that's assuming time. It's the ever-changing now. All right? Things are just changing. We attempt to measure their rate of change. We call it time. But it's always now. If I had a watch and it just said, now? Hey, what time is it? Oh, it's now. <laughs> always be accurate, right? Of course, I'd probably be late for this talk or something. But, you know, it's a convenient illusion, this thing called time. But it has no hard basis in reality. We made the whole thing up. What's going on is things are changing. Uh, The Buddha mentioned something about that, right? Nietzsche, everything's changing all the time. Well, one of the coolest illusions of all is me. Well, I don't mean me. I mean your sense of me, your sense of self. This is an illusion that fools us all, all the time. We are under the impression that we are separate selves, that we have an entityhood. It's true, the self is a genuine illusion. You know, it's not that you don't have a self. The self that you have is just an illusion, just like the moon getting bigger and smaller. We don't really see it though it's a little bit harder to break through I mean you can't hold a quarter up and measure the fact that you're not really there in the way that you think you are but this is the most important illusion for us to penetrate this is what the spiritual path is about remember the Buddha said we experience dukkha the unpleasant nature of existence because of craving So we're out there craving. And he said, if you don't want any dukkha, you need to stop the craving. You need to let go. Well, the Buddha tells you, let go. Don't do any craving. Do you listen to him? Do you manage to stop craving? Can you pull it off? No. I mean, I tell you stop craving. It's hard to pull it off. That's because you have a very strong sense of a craver. 
of there being somebody there that actually needs this stuff or wants this stuff or wants to push this away. Right? We see ourselves as being separate from other things, as being well, not only separate, but the most important aspect of the whole universe. What we want to try and do is penetrate this illusion. You want to try and understand that you're making yourself up. You do it over and over again all the time. If you pay careful attention, you can watch yourself make yourself up. Particularly if you're absorbed in something. You know, you're, you're reading a really good book. You're not thinking, I'm reading a really good book. I'm reading the word the. I'm reading the word big. No, it's, you just come into the flow of the book. And then the phone rings. And you come back and you go, I have to answer my phone. And then you announce, you know, hello, you know, and so forth. And you've become your person again. You're no longer in the book. But while you were absorbed in the book, there was no reference to me or anything. Now, it's tricky because the moment you start looking to see, am I present or not? You immediately make yourself up. I mean, it's, it's a habit. Uh, it's necessary to have this sense of self. You need to distinguish between your fingers and the sandwich, right? You don't want to eat the fingers, right? So you, you, it's, a, it's a useful thing. It's a useful illusion, just like the plastic and the green pieces of paper and so forth. Yeah, even the TV, I suppose, could be useful. But you don't want to be fooled by it. You want to get an idea of what's really going on at the deepest level. I heard a talk by Joseph Goldstein one time where he pointed out that you should probably think of yourself not as a noun, but as a verb. Uh, you're a process. In fact, you're multiple processes. We speak of this at times, you know, the circulatory process, the digestive process, well, you're a whole bunch of processes and you're not a static thing. I mean, the bell, you know, it's kind of static, especially compared to a live human being. It doesn't change a lot. You come back in 10 years, it'll probably look somewhat similar. Might have gotten a little uh, change in color or something, but you look at yourself over 10 years and there's been some changes take place and you look at the other aspects of your mind, not just the physical representation. And there have been a lot of changes take place. So we're actually verbs, not nouns. Of course, I should actually mention that there aren't really any nouns at all. It's all verbs. Some of them are just moving kind of slow, right? I mean, this didn't used to be a bell, right? It used to be probably a flat piece of metal that somebody pounded into this shape and it'll stay like this for some time but eventually it won't be in this shape this used to be a tree right it uh, got carved into this shape eventually it probably become firewood turn into smoke carbon dioxide which will get breathed in by some other tree right it'll go back to being a tree 
You need to see yourself as the same sort of process, right? You used to be, well, not much of anything at all, right? And then eventually you came into this form and you'll stick around for a while in this form and then you'll get recycled. The whole universe turns out as a giant recycling project. So what our job is on the spiritual path is to see things as they really are. And one of the most important things to see as it really is, is who you are. Or more accurately, perhaps, who you aren't. You're not a separate entity. You are embedded totally in the universe. And you are completely dependent upon being embedded in this particular universe. If you were embedded on a planet that was, you know, on the average 20 degrees colder, you probably wouldn't survive, or 20 degrees hotter. You are completely dependent upon the fact that the air is pushing down on you at the rate of 14.5 pounds per square inch. If it wasn't there, you'd simply explode, right? You may think, oh, I stop at the edge of my body, but, you know, you take away the air, which isn't you, and you don't exist anymore. You wouldn't suffocate, you'd explode. Same thing with all the food. You know, food doesn't grow at the Safeway. You know, it, it required a lot of people to get it there for you to go buy it. Right? You, we are vastly interconnected. I'll give you another illusion here that may be helpful. You take 92 West. And eventually you come to Half Moon Bay, right? And you go down to the beach and you stand there ankle deep in the water. And you can see that the world ends six miles out, right? I mean, you see the edge of the world. If a ship gets too close, gets drawn over the edge, disappears, all those people die, right? It's horrible. <laughs> Happens far too often. You go down to Half Moon Bay, you'll see it happen, you know, probably on a daily basis. It's dangerous out there. Your friend comes up to you and says, I got a sailboat, let's sail, that, sail down to L.A. And you're like, no way, man. We get six miles out, we get too close to the edge of the world, and we'll fall off the edge. You are making a decision based on an illusion. Right? So somebody comes along, grabs you, stuffs you in the space shuttle, blasts you into orbit. You look down, you see it's a sphere. They explain gravity to you. You come back, you take 92 out to Half Moon Bay, you go stand in the ocean, ankle deep, looks the same. Only now you don't conceive of it being the edge of the world. Right? You, you don't think the ship sailed over the edge, all those people died, you just went beyond the horizon. You have managed to shatter the illusion. Your friend says to you, I have a sailboat, let's sail down to L.A., you might still turn him down because you're afraid you get seasick, but you're not going to turn him down because you're afraid of falling off the edge of the world. You're no longer going to make your decision based on an illusion. This is what we've got to do to wake up. We're running around making hundreds, thousands of decisions a day based on the illusion of a separate self. All right? This is where selfishness comes from. It, the Buddha said there are ten fetters that bind us to the wheel of samsara. One of the first ones to go is the belief 
in a separate self. Right? That until you actually are willing to let go of believing that you're a separate entity, uh, you're stuck to the wheel of samsara. But if you can give up that belief, you've made some fairly significant progress. But the breakthrough to enlightenment comes when the conceiving of a separate self stops. Just like you no longer conceive of the edge of the world, you need to get to the place where you no longer conceive of a separate self. Because if you're not conceiving of a separate self, then there's no basis for selfish action, no basis for craving, no basis for clinging, and hence, no more dukkha. So I think I'll stop there and see if there are any questions. Does uh, learning about science, geography, geology, biology, learning about all different kinds of things that make up the make up the world, does that help on the spiritual path a lot? It can be very helpful because one, it can help us see that the world is not exactly as it appears to our senses. We often assume that. If we see it, smell it, taste it, then it's real. Okay? And so by getting a deeper understanding of what's going on, particularly with biology and physics, it can be very helpful because it gives us a much broader perspective and we're no longer assuming the world is exactly as we take it in through our senses. So it, it can be a very helpful thing. Now I'm saying this because I have a science background and I'm interested in science. So. If that's not something that interests you, it may not be all that helpful. But if it is something that interests you, it can be, it can be enormously helpful. My teacher, Ayakema, used to say that if the physicist who described, you know, solid things as being mostly empty really understood what they were talking about, they'd all be enlightened. Right? <laughs> if you really got that sense of it at the deepest level. But at least it can give us a hint that, you know, what we think things are is actually a lot more going on than that. So, yeah. Um, in, in one of the Dalai Lama's books, I read that someone uh, asked him, um, is life an illusion? And his response was, no, life is like an illusion. And I think what he meant by that is that there is reality out there, but we just aren't capable of perceiving it with any accuracy. Um, is, is that a useful point of view? What would you say about that? Right. I mean, this, this is a philosophical debate. Are we all making it up in our heads or am I making it up in my heads? And you're all just parts of my made up illusion. Or is there actually something out there? And I, I'm pretty sure there's something out there because some of the stuff that comes down, I've I got a good imagination, but I couldn't make up stuff that weird. I mean, especially when you get into politics. I mean, no way. <laughs> All right. So I think there's something going on besides just an illusion in my head. All right. I think there is some reality out there. But 
I think we have a great tendency to misperceive it because we believe our senses. It's necessary to take in sensory data in order to operate in the world. I mean, if you're going to cross the street, you do need to look both ways. If you don't, you get run down by a bus. All right. So it's absolutely essential that you take in the sensory data. But you don't want to use the sensory data as the complete explanation of what's going on. What I think is really happening is that, like I said, it's all verbs. But... It's all interconnected in such a way that there actually turns out to just be one verb, the verb being unfolding. The universe is unfolding. It's not unfolding as a bunch of separate pieces. However, our little pea brains can't take in the entire universe. And so for us to deal with the whole universe, we have to chop it up into manageable bite-sized pieces and deal with the individual pieces. Now this works fairly well in many ways, however it can lead to some, well, diluted thinking such as, I'm a separate person from you, and furthermore, I'm the most important person. Right? And so we wind up with our selfish attitudes and our craving and clinging, which leads to dukkha. So I think the Dalai Lama was right on in that it's like an illusion, meaning that we don't see the depths of what's really going on, but that there is something out there that's actually to be perceived, to be seen for what it really is, that's not just made up in your head. At one point in my life I worked out what I thought was an accurate observation that if you stand ankle deep in the beach water, you can see between three and three and a half miles out. Now, either, either the world's gotten twice as big or this is an illusion of an illusion. <laughs> right, I picked up the six miles from reading something else, so maybe it wasn't ankle deep. <laughs> if you get up on the... On a good-sized ship, you might see farther. Yeah, well, it's interesting to, to go to some place like Marin and stand at Stinson Beach where you can see only a few miles out and then drive up to the top of Mount Tam and you can see more than 30 miles out. Right. So someone back here had a question. When you were just speaking, I don't... Sorry, I think so. Just talking into it. Just talking into it? Um, when you were just speaking, um, I made a connection to the um, lecture last week. Um, the lecturer said, when you look at a map, we understand that it's not the terrain, that it's simply a map. And so then I was making a connection between you said, we have to bring in information in through our perception system, but what if we understand that that's not really the terrain? Then the question that came up for me is, how would I... You use the word see. How would I see the real reality? I'm not even sure that's the right verb. How would I experience it? Or how would I know it? Know it. Something beyond my perception? Or the, the, the taste, smell, touch? Like what, what is that? How do I... Right. Yeah, very good question. What we do is we take in the information. And we can't... We can't divide it up and chop it up in the way that we normally do. Okay, We need to examine it deep, more deeply. 
uh, it's partially a matter of reassembling all the pieces. Right, so so you've got your your toast that you bought at Albertsons, right? Well, actually, you bought the bread. You made the toast in the toaster, right? And you're looking at it and realize that it's not just toast; that it's bread that was made from wheat that was grown by farmers that was transported by you know trucks that got the oil from the Middle East, and the electricity that converted it from bread to toast is coming from a hydroelectric plant that's silting up. And, you know, when you start getting all of the picture in there, and as John Muir said, you can't pick up any piece of nature without finding it nailed to everything else. We need to take what comes in through our senses and realize that it's nailed to everything else in the universe. So you can't see the full reality without using what's behind the seeing, your mind, to really analyze it in a way that takes it out of the normal way of processing. Now, having said that, which sounds like there's a lot that's going on behind, you know, and the mind is having to analyze all this stuff, there's a story of Bahia who came to see the Buddha. And the Buddha was on alms round. And Bahia said, Venerable Sir, I need to ask you a question. And the Buddha said, Not a good time, Bahia, I'm on alms round. Bahia was a wanderer from another sect, a, a spiritual seeker. He said, but, but Venerable Sir, it won't take long. Not a good time. But Venerable Sir, it's, it's really important. Okay, Bahia. I mean, sometimes when you ask the Buddha something three times, you know, he'd agree. All right. So he says, what, what have I got to do to get enlightened? And the Buddha says, for you, Bahia, in the scene, there should be only the scene. In the herd, only the herd. In the cognized, only the cognized. Bahia saluted the Buddha and went away because he got it and became enlightened at that point. Of course, the story has a tragic ending in that Bahia was gored to death later that day by a cow. But the teaching is very simple. In the scene, there's just the scene. Can you look at the world with your eyes and just see without chopping it up into pieces and analyzing the pieces as to which one should be mine? And which one I should be afraid of? Can you hear the world in the same way? Can you cognize the world without reference to self? Okay, since I'm two minutes past time, I want to say thank you very much for the invitation to come and share the Dharma with you.